Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union, so I have some Brezhnev jokes. We all grew up with those. So it's 1980, and Brezhnev is the head of the Communist Party. He's the leader. He's completely senile, and he has to get up on the podium and deliver the opening speech to the Moscow Olympics. He crawls up to the podium, and he looks at the sheet of paper in front of him. He says, Oh! And then his assistant runs up to him and says, Comrade General Secretary, those are just the Olympic rings. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from celebrated author Gary Steingart. Look for his new book coming out in August. I haven't heard a Brezhnev joke since... Brezhnev. Since Brezhnev. Coming up, journalist Sebastian Younger, The Limits of Unlimited, Comic Stamps, The Most Evil Machine in the World, Cold Lahoma, War Rations, and Cults. But first, time for Small Talk. All right, Rico, this week, three stories that have dominated the news all summer long are going to be leaving the front page. Oh, poor journalists. That's right. They're sad. I, I know. I am one. Honestly, they're, next week they're going to be looking for like a Joe Biden gaffe or like a picture of a cat with the Benjamin Franklin outfit, something to cover (laughs) desperately because these stories will no longer be there. The financial overhaul bill finally made it through the Senate. As of this recording, the leaking BP oil well has been capped. Awesome. And Lindsay Lohan has been sentenced for violating her probation. Oh. These are like, these are the cash cows of the media American tragedies all. (laughs) True. For stories that never made it to the headlines to begin with, we turn to our colleagues at Marketplace. Patty Hirsch, senior editor for Marketplace. What story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the CEO of Spirit Airlines. <laughs> Why? Because apparently this guy believes that baggage is not essential when you're going on vacation. Psychological baggage? No, any baggage at all, even a carry-on. They're char- it's, it's seen as a luxury and they're going to charge you for it. <laughs> when he said that, was he unshaven and wearing a rumpled suit? <laughs> Jeremy Hobson, New York reporter, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Rico, here in New York we have these unlimited metro cards that allow you to use the subway or the buses as much as possible. Right. Well, now, because of budget cuts, the MTA wants to make it so that you can only use your unlimited card 90 times throughout the month. So the unlimited Limited card will not actually be unlimited. Exactly. What's next here? You're going to limit the uh, amount of breadsticks you can get at the Olive Garden to 90? Uh, it seems unreasonable. <laughs> you know, I also have to say, New York has a history of this. The city that never sleeps. I, I know that portions of the Bronx sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure Flatbush sleeps. You're all hyperbole, New York. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter at Marketplace. What's your story this weekend? The U.S. Postal Service is just announced. It's releasing a new series of stamps based on the funnies. The funnies? What are the funnies? The funnies from the newspaper. Oh, I see. So from, like, the Sunday comics. Yes, from the comics. Well, I guess this makes sense because the only people who buy newspapers are probably the same people who buy stamps. I buy stamps. You don't buy stamps? Like, their next collection is going to have landline phones on it. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. This is where we tell you all about something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a scuba diver mesmerized by the beauty he finds floating at the bottom of a huge glass of booze. 
Man, that makes me want to be Jacques Cousteau. Happy Bastille Day. I like that red toque he has, too. First, the history. This week, back in 1935, America unleashed one of its most horrifying inventions upon an unsuspecting world. Now, the folks at your dinner party might guess it was the atom bomb. They would be wrong. Our friend Michelle Philippi is here to tell the tale. You can blame Oklahoma City, Oklahoma for the parking meter. More specifically, you can blame Oklahoma City's Carl C. McGee. Back in 1933, the town's Chamber of Commerce appointed Carl to the Traffic Committee. His task? To figure out why shoppers could never find a place to park their cars downtown. Carl studied the area and realized the problem wasn't too many cars. It was that most parked cars never moved. Downtown workers would drive in early and take up 80% of the parking spaces all day long. Two years later, Carl had invented a solution, a little timer on a pole beside each space. Drivers dropped in a nickel and got up to an hour of parking, after which they had to move or pay a fine. In the dead of night, on July 16, 1935, workers planted the first crop of Carl's parkometers. Soon, they were spreading like weeds. In many cities throughout the country, the newest thing for downtown parking is this automatic collector of external revenue, the five-cent parking machine. Drivers hated parking meters immediately. Some filed lawsuits, calling them a form of illegal taxation. And it didn't help when the first parking ticket was placed on a preacher's car while he was in a store getting coins to feed the meter. A judge dismissed that ticket, but meters themselves were ruled perfectly legal. Today, there are 4.5 million of them in the U.S. alone, and parking is a $30 billion a year industry. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am speaking with Mo Hanuni. He is a bartender at the Skirvin Hotel Bar in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And Mo, you heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? The drink that inspires me to make, the name of it is going to be the Meter Walk. The meter walk. That's right. And why is that? It gets really cold here in the winter. Yeah. So you have to walk outside to your car, feed the meter every hour. So you have to make a lot of trips, you know, all day. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets really cold in Oklahoma? I didn't know that. It gets really cold, yeah. And it actually snows just about every year. It's so bad that it, you're actually thinking about it even in the middle of summer. <laughs> This is a drink to go outside and feed the mirror and come back, and you'll be good. So this is a drink to keep you warm? Yep. We can put it on file and use it later. What, how do you make this thing? Just put a uh, half an ounce of Irish cream, half an ounce of Goldschlager, which is a uh, cinnamon liqueur, and a half an ounce of Rumpelmint. It's a uh, mint liqueur. Rumpelmint? Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing? Pretty much, yeah. It keeps you warm. Although I feel like to, to make it absolutely perfect, it should cost a nickel. Right. And the hangover should kick in exactly an hour later. <laughs> So, Brendan, I think the fact that a preacher got the first parking (laughs) ticket proves meters are the work of Satan. Clearly, it's totally true. But, you know, a little-known fact, that preacher was also the first guy to jam a parking meter on purpose, yeah. He just shoved in a bunch of communion wafers, jammed it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you will find that recipe on our website for the cocktail, not for communion wafers. (laughs) It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is writer and documentary filmmaker Sebastian Younger. He's widely known for his debut book, The Perfect Storm. His latest work is a documentary film called Restrepo, about the time he spent embedded with a platoon of soldiers in Afghanistan. 
Uh, Sebastian, what were you doing there, and what was the platoon's mission? I wanted to uh, write a book and make a film about what it's like to be a soldier in combat. So I was with uh, Battle Company of the 173rd. They were in the Korengal Valley. Mm -hmm. Their mission was to bring security into that valley. It was six miles long, and ultimately to build a road. They were Mm -hmm. at a remote outpost called Restrepo. No running water, no phone, no cooked food, and they were in uh, sometimes four or five firefights a day. You know, I think, you know, when a lot of Americans think of the war in Afghanistan, for them it's a faraway, it's a crazy kind of faraway place with intractable problems and our fighting there is futile. You know, when you watch the film, that perception doesn't change. It feels like a crazy faraway place with intractable problems. Do you see it that way? God, I mean, that's, yeah, it is a faraway land with intractable problems uh, in some ways. I mean, before the Soviets invaded, it was a fairly unified, stable country. Um, So we don't want to think about Afghanistan as just somehow inherently chaotic and violent. It really, that's not in its history. You know, people keep asking me, like, can we have victory there? And we're there to fight the threat of terrorism. I mean, that's why we entered there at any rate. It's a little bit like the war on drugs. Like, we're not going to win the war on drugs. The, the question is, uh, is our society more secure fighting the, the war on drugs, uh, a, war, a war that has no foreseeable end? Are we better off fighting it than not fighting it? You've been covering wars for years now. What, if anything, surprised you about Afghanistan and your experience there? I've been going to Afghanistan since 1996. Um, I remember I was there in 2000 with the Northern Alliance getting rocketed by the Taliban. And we were just getting pounded. And we were all sort of taking cover, uh, you know, in these, these foxholes. And this Afghan fighter sort of like put himself on top of me to protect me from the from the shrapnel. And, you know, he did it because I was I was his guest. Like, he was charged with my safety. And in Afghan culture, if harm comes to a guest, it's such an incredible dishonor that your own life really isn't worth living. It's one of the, you know, it's such, that's such a moving thing. And, and he didn't know me at all, you know. But it, um, it's one of the things that, is, you know, makes me incredibly fond of the Afghan people. And that's one of the reasons I've been going back there. Well, we have two standard questions on our show. And they revolve around a different theater of war, the dinner party. And <laughs> our first question is... If we were sitting next to you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What question are you just tired of being asked? The question I have no answer for is, what are you doing next? I've, <laughs> I have been so immersed in this project that I literally have not thought forward from this moment. So that that won't get you anywhere. We had a writer on the program before who complained about a similar thing, and he was saying that, you know, no one ever asked Dennis what they're going to do next. <laughs> you know, I'm pulling teeth. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I've also thought, like, I mean, if, if, a, if a woman gives birth, has a child, no one says, when's your next <laughs> child? Like, no one thinks to ask that. Yeah. And, and it's a little bit like that with the book. Well, our last question is, uh, tell us something we don't know, something about you or the world you know, something we could share at a dinner party and impress people with. Well, here's something kind of interesting. In my book, I was trying to understand how courage works. I mean, it's an odd thing to do. You sacrifice your life for someone else. And what I found is that human beings are the only species where a young male, or female for that matter, will risk or sacrifice his life defending a peer that he is not related to. In Darwinian terms, it's a very puzzling choice to make. You throw yourself on a hand grenade, you save everyone else in the bunker, they pass on their DNA... And your courageous DNA gets wiped out right then and there and does not get passed on. I was thinking, is that one of the things that we can learn from soldiers and that we can bring back to civil society? Well, I think um, what, one of the things soldiers miss, and they do miss it, you know, they come back from their tour of duty and they want to go back. What they miss is the security of brotherhood. It's an understanding that you will put the welfare of the group above your own personal welfare. If you can bring that back a little bit, I think it would do society a tremendous amount of good. 
my word. Yeah, right? Talk about an impressive gentleman. And he was once on, like, people's hottest guys in America list. Really? You know, talking about the carriage gene, you would need it to sit next to this guy at a dinner party. That's right. I mean, between his <laughs> swashbuckling tails. You are not going to top his stories. <laughs> and his uh, jawline. Ladies and gentlemen, you can enlist on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. So we heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we learn about food. And Brendan, we didn't plan it this way, but it looks like we are having a war-themed episode. Does it, is this, are you giving me a heads up that we have a cupcake story coming? No, that that's your personal war. <laughs> it's a war of aggression that they started, Rico. No, I'm talking about the Great War. The Great Oxymoron. Indeed. This year, London's Imperial War Museum has an exhibit about how the Brits ate and cooked during World War II when it was basically impossible to import food. Although you wouldn't so, know it from looking at Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. How did he stay did so fit? Did not miss a meal. Anyway, in the museum's cafe, they're actually serving dishes based on World War II British recipes. Yum. So, I know. <laughs> so when I was in London a few weeks back, I had to stop into the cafe. I spoke to manager Katie Flooster, and first I asked her what ingredients were in short supply during the war. Butter was rationed and fats. So there goes all good food right there. How do you cook? <laughs> People would use other items such as margarine, butter and dairy were the first things to be rationed. So people would mix margarine with sugar and that would create a cream-like mixture that they would use on cakes. So you're serving this food that is based on whatever was available at the time. Is it actually tasty? It is very tasty. Some of the recipes we've looked at and we've had to not go ahead with, we've had plenty of trials um, and thought, well, fantastic, it's an original recipe, uh, but no, we can't serve that. <laughs> like what? Um, wheat was in short supply towards the end of the war, and the recipe for biscuits, for example, people would have substituted wheat with mashed potato. And we did actually make some potato biscuits. <laughs> now, you mean biscuits in the British sense, what Americans call cookies. You're telling me mashed potato cookies weren't so great? Not quite the same, no. <laughs> the lack of sweetness, the lack of sugar, because obviously sugar was rationed as well, didn't quite make them palatable enough. So are you using anything with sugar? I mean, is there any? did you take any liberties with these recipes? We've had to take some liberties, yes. Um, and we are using some sugar. People would have had a couple of ounces per adult per week. War is hell. <laughs> All right, we are standing in the actual cafe called the Kitchen Front, and uh, I'm going to try some of this stuff. What are we looking at? A corned beef sandwich, which is made with piccalilli. And what, is, what is piccalilli? Cauliflower, tomatoes, onions, and they're pickled with a mustard. Oh, actually, that mm. sounds kind of awesome. You should bottle that. <laughs> People did. Pickled vegetables, pickled eggs would have been a way of making what you had last. And it's, and it's served on a bread called a national loaf, which I can tell you doesn't sound immediately appealing to me. No, the national loaf was a bread using the whole grain flour. So again, sending the message of not wasting. So all of the bread after about 1943 would have been brown. You wouldn't have seen white bread. But it is very tasty. Mmm. I actually really like it. And yet it doesn't make me long for war or anything. So it's good, but it's not that good. So basically, Rico, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the entire country of England was locavore. 
<laughs> during the war. But that's funny, but it's true. Everyone started gardens or they had community gardens and they ate what was in season. And actually, people as a whole, I was told, were a lot healthier in World War II, except for the bombs. So Michael Pollan basically just needs to coordinate an invasion of our country in order that's to. That's right. <laughs> we'll all be fit as a fiddle. It reminds me of a dream I had of Alice Waters in a bandolier. That wasn't a dream. And that's the dinner party download for this week. You can keep up with us between episodes on Twitter. But can you? We're Dinner Party DNLD. Thanks this week to Jackson Musker, Ellen Gutler, Peter Clowney, Delassie Michalis, and Eve Tro. And thanks to Minnesota Public Radio, which has started airing us on a bunch of Midwest stations on the actual radio. Yay! Go to mpr.org for details, Midwesterners. And uh, we leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a tune to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. This week, it's a band called Cults, and they're in the midst of creating one themselves. Spooky. Not a lot is known about them, but they've released three great songs this year, and this one is called Go Outside. Which you should do. Not in L.A. Bon appétit.
I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. Hey, man, do you have a quarter? Yeah, I think I have one. Officer! Hey! We were just about to feed the meter!